in the normal extreme right, that theory for social change is generally civil war, race war, purge, extermination, deportation, destruction. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm Assistant Director of the Centre for Religion, Ethics and Society at Charleston University. And I work on the topic of political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. Joining me is Dr. Christy Campion, who is a lecturer in terrorism studies in the Australian Graduate School of Policing and Security, also at Charleston University. And she is the author of a book published this year with Alan and Unwin, called Chasing Shadows, the untold and deadly story of terrorism in Australia. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, Christy not only is a scholar of terrorism, she has a specialization in right-wing extremism, which is gonna be the subject of this particular conversation. Now, Christy, in your book, Chasing Shadows, you identify three key characteristics that define, if you like, what turns out to be quite a motley group of right-wing extremist groups and ideologies. And those three characteristics are authoritarianism, anti-democratic beliefs, and exclusionary nationalism. Could you flesh out a bit these characteristics and how we are to define and conceive of right-wing extremism? So when it comes to defining the extreme right, a rule of threes really does apply. And those three elements, as you said, are any democracy, authoritarianism, and exclusionary nationalism. But to unpack that a little bit more, uh, each of these characteristics allows us to identify an individual or a movement that aligns with extreme right-wing ideology. So first is any, any democracy, and that opposition to democracy, both as a system of governance but also the principles which underlie it. So to explain that further, when we're looking at their manifestos, at their websites and at their statements and videos, we see a great deal of discussion about how democracy is a broken system, about how democracy is based on flawed assumptions of humanity and how democracy allows the weak to rule the strong. So these are, these are individuals that don't believe that political equality exists and in fact, they frequently talk about how equality is a false god. What we also tend to see are narratives about how democracy has been corrupted by elites, how it's been subverted both inside and outside by traitors, or how it's been engineered deliberately as this vast conspiracy to control uh, and subdue the so-called white race. Now, that conspiracy specifically often refers to what's called the Zion, Zionist occupation government conspiracy, which is this belief that there's this Jewish super government that's pulling the strings of governments around the world. So any democracy is a very strong and very readily identifiable feature within the extreme right. Now the next one, authoritarianism, isn't quite so easy at first um, to identify. And that's because authoritarian rhetoric is often cloaked in the language of freedom. But when you look past that, and when you look at the, the core ideas and beliefs within their, within their writings and within what they say, what you start to see are these um, core beliefs about how people should behave and how 
they should be compelled to behave and conform a certain way. So what we tend to see them talk about are things like traditional values or the so-called natural order. And what we see behind that are beliefs such as women shouldn't be in the workforce because their natural role, their alleged natural role is as wives and mothers. You know, so behind what you kind of think of as really, really that cult of tradition, what you tend to see are actually these ideas about how people should be forced to behave whether they want to or not. A lot of that is also uh, directed in, in many global extreme right contexts at uh, sexual nonconformers. So people who are um, part of the LGBTIQ community um, are normally targeted through authoritarian uh, narratives. The third element of the extreme right is exclusionary nationalism. And this one is definitely the characteristic that attracts the most media attention. And the reason for that is because it's generally very racially loaded. So in Western democracies around the world, particularly settler societies such as Australia, New Zealand, and of course the United States, exclusionary nationalism manifests as the the championing or the advancing of a particular ethnic group. Now in those countries that I mentioned, that ethnic group is white Australians, white Americans, white New Zealanders. Now, what they often do is they attempt to graft a sense of nativity on these communities and entitlement on these communities. The white community becomes this this in-group, which is this sacred, special, privileged uh, group in the community. Everyone outside of that group, so religious minorities, ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, are deemed to be outside of that, that umbrella of protection. So they become the out-group. And this is where we start to see a lot of racist vitriol targeted um, towards particularly ethnic minorities, religious minorities, but also a lot of exclusionary language directed towards non-conformers of of all types. How that manifests in a really interesting way in in all Western uh, contexts is, of course, how they direct their language at the political left wing. Uh, So in in the extreme right, when they're talking about their nation, they mean the people who believe what they believe and who look like them. So if you don't believe what they believe, if you're not a member of of their their in-group because of your political beliefs, because of how you vote, you're seen to be on the outside, ergo you're seen to be the enemy. So those three characteristics, anti-democracy, authoritarianism and exclusionary nationalism, are very much the umbrella characteristics that have within them a really diverse array of right-wing extremist milieus, groups, movements, and individuals. That rule of three I mentioned also applies there. So when we look under the umbrella, we see groups that are very, very ethnocentric, very very ethno-national, very racially motivated. We also see groups who are less racially motivated and very fixated on on the government and on economic systems. The next one is the final one, and that is the religious element of the extreme right. So these three broad categories are identifiable within those three core definitions for the extreme right. What follows on from all of that are the more identifiable narratives, beliefs, and statements. Generally, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, transphobic, obviously is uh, quite a major one, Um, intolerant, xenophobic, all of those sorts of things, they're all grouped there. They're all consequences of those three core beliefs. Christy, can I I ask, is that 
definition just derived from an observation of the diverse array of right-wing extremist groups that there are. And what, I, what I'm really heading driving at there is whether a group, it's a boundary question, whether a group has to exhibit all three of those characteristics or beliefs to be classed as extreme right-wing. Yeah, that's a good question. So when the when academia really started to examine the extreme right, um, surprisingly, it was in the 60s. Uh, and so right back to the 1960s, we have people such as scholar George Rush, who was who was looking at the definition from the extreme right. And what's really interesting is that uh, in the in the sort of the decades that followed World War Two, when the, the military defeat of fascism, you see another element there um, listed, and that's that's the idea of the strong state, which is that an extreme right group must want a dictatorship. Now, that's one of the main things that has become subject to quite a bit of discussion by scholars. Um, one of the, the primary scholars of this is Kaz Mudd, who's a European scholar who has spent an entire career on this and, and done a considerable amount of work. What happened uh, a couple of years ago was that the, the debate was revisited by himself and quite an extensive array of other scholars to really narrow down on what is a minimum definition for the extreme right and does that minimum definition accurately capture those three categories of ethnocentrics, anti-government and religious proponents. Uh, the outcome of that was those three core features of any democracy, authoritarianism, and exclusionary nationalism. Now, I think the, the key thing to highlight with, with this definition is really how it's applied. So when we're talking about exclusionary nationalism, I think everyone thinks, okay, neo-Nazis, neo-Nazis don't want all these other ethnicities in, in their community. Uh, but what you can also see is that same form of exclusionary nationalism amongst anti-government groups who aren't so fixated on, on race and, and questions of ethnicity. They're more fixated on the very populist divisions between us and them, um, the corrupt elite and the sacred pure people. You know, so it does apply across the spectrum. Um, it is considered to be uh, the minimum definition. But one of the things I will highlight is when we're dealing with the extreme right, right, it's very well known to be a moving target. So what that means is that their ideologies are constantly evolving, uh, almost in tandem with changes in contemporary context. Uh, new ideas are always always entering the domain. And so this definition isn't static. It may well change in the future. Uh, but it's the consensus that was reached towards the end of 2018. You described it as an umbrella definition, which are a sort of first categorization that allows us to pull a large number of groups, movements, individuals, writings, videos for the purpose of analysis. But under that, once you get into the specificities, um, then you can start to talk with uh, greater granularity about Group X or this manifesto over here. And really then the, the key characteristics, because I've noticed this in the the brief study I've done of Christian identity. Thanks to you, because you put me, me onto it. I hadn't even heard of it beforehand. And you mentioned the religious extreme right. And this, this is an example. Once, 
once you get into the specificity, you start to see all kinds of ideas that are that are quite distant just from those broad topics. And of course, the, the whole Christian identity movement, I feel like I should say something now that I've just mentioned it, and most listeners probably haven't heard of it. But this this is a, it is a, a race, definitely a race-based and, and racist uh, really ideology slash theology, which argues that actually the, the the Israelites of the Bible, including Jesus, were Aryans and that the Jews are this imposter race that have come in and corrupted Christianity. And so they put themselves in opposition to the entire Christian tradition. And so anyone listening that goes to a church is a believer in something called Judeo-Christianity, not actually real Christianity, and that the white races today, the Anglo-Saxons, the Germans, the Scandinavians, and this kind of areas around the edges, it can include the Celts, it can include everyone right down to Italians and and Slavs are today the descendants of the Hebrew people. These are the chosen race of God. Salvation is just for those people because Jesus wasn't a Jew. He was this Aryan Israelite, much like Anglo Sadain, and he died and rose specifically <laughs> for the salvation of that that race. So it completely turns on 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 its head. Um, this, the uh, you know the kind of teaching of of the the Bible. So the people you think are Jews are not Jews, and <laughs> what you think of Jews is something different. So you've got a classic anti-Semitic, racist, um, really theology slash ideology that definitely comes under that category of exclusionary nationalism. I'm not sure about the authoritarian and anti-democratic. That may or may not be part of it. But I just cite that as an example of how once you come under these, once you get down into the the weeds from these umbrella terms, um, thanks to the, the various wonderful websites and manifestos you sent me in preparation for this, you start to see it goes in 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 all kinds of strange specific directions. So, uh, when we talk about the religious the religious extreme, right? There are a couple of different elements of it. So the major element and the one you just articulated so clearly is of course the Christian identity element. And that's one that's been very strong in the United States um, and elsewhere around the world. But the other one, which I, which I find really interesting, is the element of the extreme right referred to as the Votensvolk, which is essentially this form of biologized neo-paganism. You know, so they call themselves wolf age pagans, right? And what's really interesting about you know these neo-pagans with this heavily racialized view of the world is number one they view their their theology their their beliefs as the inheritance the, the 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 righteous inheritance of the white race and that it's only through adhering to to this you know belief system that they're able to truly live authentically as Aryans right but the other really interesting thing about it is that this particular belief system actually began in Australia, <laughs> which I think is one of the, the overlooked contributions of, of Australians in, in the, the world of extreme right-wing ideas. So right back in the 1920s, uh, actually might have even been a little bit earlier than that, before people were really talking about paganism that much, Australia had a lawyer, a solicitor, called Alexander Rudd Mills. 
and he became convinced that the so-called Judeo-Christianity was mongrelizing the white race. And this is what he wrote in his, in his books. And so he taught people that the, the current iterations of faith were actually working to enslave and diminish Aryan genius in the world. And so his solution for that was for people to return to what he saw as their natural belief system, which was his version uh, of what became later known as Odinism. So he established the Church of Odin uh, in Melbourne and elsewhere around the world as well. Now, this, this activity wasn't necessarily in disconnect from the rest of the world because he was well known to have traveled to, to Germany and he actually met Adolf Hitler, you know, so there's there's immediately that kind of intersection between a biologized view of faith and this idea that that race and faith are inseparable with budding fascist movements. Now, what's interesting about Mills is that he he failed pretty substantially in Australia. Um, he, his his church never really got that big. I think at most from memory, it was about 53 people. He had, it was almost like a cult in a way. He had his followers and it didn't really flourish beyond that. But where it really took off was in the United States. And in the United States, we start to see the later iterations of his Odinism, which became known as the Votensvolk. Now, why that's interesting is because they have been connected with acts of violence in contemporary times. So by way of example, uh, in Australia in 2016, we had the budding leader of a Votensvolk group, Ricky White, uh, commit an arson attack against a church in Tari. Um, and that, the reason why he targeted that church was because it was a church that supported immigrants. So even when you have belief systems such as neo-paganism that, that do have very inclusive and lawful and uh, progressive iterations, they can be subverted and they can be reinterpreted in very exclusionary ways to delegitimize the presence of you know, most of their own community in their own country. That's really so fascinating. I had no idea about the Australian origins of Odinism. And if it were anything else that wasn't this appalling, I'd say, you know, <laughs> it'd be a bit of a pride that we, there's some some phenomenon that we actually bequeath to America, but this is not one we can be proud of, unfortunately, because I just assumed, perhaps erroneously, that the, the pathway of transmission of right-wing extremist ideas likely runs from America into Australia and to some extent from Europe into Australia, perhaps via ethnic communities, because it, it turns out today, and correct me if I'm wrong, that really one of the, it seems like one of the most fertile places certainly for what is popularly known in the media as the neo-nazi movement seems to be eastern europe it's the it's russia and uh croatia i note from your book that really the perhaps the oldest form of right-wing terrorism in australia is the uh ethnically croat ustasha if that's the right pronunciation pronunciation movement that i think goes what right back to the, the 50s these are the the sort of Inheritors, inheritors of a legacy of Croat fascism that uh, collaborated with the Third Reich and I think perhaps fought against some of the other um, parts of what became Yugoslavia. But 
that I just want to just want to make one observation myself about that Odinism because this is something that really struck me as I was researching the Christian identity and at the same time being exposed and this was like a double revelation that right-wing extremists including those who have committed really appalling acts of violence they talk about Valhalla and Odin and that was the, the sort of pagan element was a shock because traditionally from a religious studies point of view they, they seem to be completely incompatible and actually when you look at the doctrines and ideas you would think these people would be mortal enemies because uh, you know I found one uh, old YouTube clip from a guy expounding the virtues of his faith as he described it otherwise known as Odinism and he was he was hammering Christianity for stealing and appropriating the indigenous religion of white people and wink wink nod nod corrupting it with the the evil Jewish you know it's almost like you find the Jews at the bottom of every single rabbit hole and I mean I don't know if you, if, if if anyone has a handle on this but it's just it's just amazing the the absolute obsession with the Jews and the the evil Jews just being behind every single thing that's wrong even in places where just the stretch of logic just seems phenomenal but of course back to these Christian identity people these people are, say, are claiming that the the true white people are the Hebrews and Israelites spoken of in the Old Testament going right back to Abrahamic times so they're claiming that this thing called Christianity that has been corrupted into Judeo-Christianity that's the native authentic religion of the white white race and that the white race white races need to return to this covenantal relationship with God in order to experience the full kingdom of God in its kind of racially pure bliss and yet on the other hand you've got these pagans saying no 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 there is no white form of Christianity it's all you know Jewish corruption and actually what we need to do is return to the very thing that Christianity came in and displaced historically talking about real history here because there's a lot of fantastical history in the writings of these guys and that for me was a, a great example of how once you get down to the more fine-grained look you start to see not only divergences but mutually incompatible and incoherent doctrines albeit all centered on a, a common kind of racial aspirational kind of underlying racism that drives it all but it kind of uh, if you like springs up into different plans yeah absolutely i think one of the the other things we tend to see is in some of these subcultures um you know obviously in in the u.s but also in the united kingdom germany and australia is the the use of religious language that doesn't necessarily um indicate this incredible strength of conviction number one um, but also doesn't indicate that typical uh, interpretation of the faith on the other so by way of example when when we look at the the neo-nazis in the united states there were a number who uh who would frequently you know talk about god and say well god willing i will do this and i will do that and this will happen and and, and so they they do use religious language to cloak what they're actually intending uh, to do or what they actually believe. Now, with, with respect to the, the Odinists, 
uh, well, the the far right iteration of of the Odinists, what we do see is a lot of invocations of Valhalla, and this is really important because these invocations generally happen right before an attack. You know, so we saw the Christchurch attacker do it. We saw Stefan Balliet do it shortly thereafter. So this belief that through engaging in violence, through contemplating their own demise, they're going to enter some some heroic and and almost palingenetic afterlife is really common. Um, but it's also really important because that sort of notion of rebirth, it doesn't just affect the religious elements of the extreme right. It actually permeates even even the secular movement. So when we look at you know, formal fascist movements, we still see that palingenetic impulse, this idea that there will be a rebirth, that the people, I'm saying that in inverted commas, that the people, you know, the in-group, that the sacred community will be reborn. And in being reborn, they will be able to reclaim a manifest destiny. So they tend to coach things in, in very dramatic uh, language like there's this regardless of their their belief system that there's always this cosmic battle taking place between good and evil and once evil is vanquished because of course they think they're the good guys uh, you know society will emerge like a phoenix from the ashes and this is very common uh, throughout many elements of the extreme right I would observe that it's more common amongst your your ethnocentric milieus, so your your white supremacists, your white nationalists, your fascists and whatnot. Obviously very common amongst religious iterations, but observably less common amongst anti-government milieus. That prompts me to ask you about the anti-government milieus, and I confess I've, I've in the, <laughs> the days I've been researching this, I've spent less time in in those particular waters. So what, what are can you build out for us some of the ideas around those whose primary concern is, uh, I take it, some kind of battle between the virtuous popular masses and some corrupt elite, whether it's um, corporate conspiracies. I, I saw, actually, there was one site you gave me that, that, that had a funny religious element where it was the, it, it had that kind of, framework but the people pulling the strings was this cabal of jesuit papist catholic i don't even know how to describe it almost almost like it was you know 1540 or something and we were in right in the the midst of the violent part of the reformation and i and i'm sure there's there's the there's the anti-semitic element that it seems to me it unlike the racial people for whom there's some kind of racial corruption from the Jews. Of course, there's the traditional anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jewish bankers and wealth and elites kind of uh, running the world and imprisoning people in a certain economic system. Can you give us a flavour, if you will, of (laughs) what's on the menu with these specifically anti-democratic or anti-government focus groups? The, I would say the, the anti-government groups do manifest differently depending on their context. So if we were in the United States right now and we were talking about the anti-government milieu, we'd primarily be talking about sovereign citizens and we'd be talking about militias. 
militias obviously due to various gun laws are not so common in the Australian context but broadly speaking when we're talking about the anti-government milia we're talking about an array and yet another array of ideas groups movements and individuals now I would argue that the the major elements are the sovereign citizens the militias uh, and the right libertarians and then I think we've got a heavy dose of of populists that also fit under that umbrella at the minute as well now to start with the sovereign citizens so uh, the sovereign citizen belief system is very much anchored in the United States context. Obviously, we're, we're seeing it in Australia at the minute, but um, it hasn't properly homogenized really with, with our history. Uh, and so the United States angle is a very important and strong angle because essentially sovereign citizens in that context, in the, in the US context, believe that the founding fathers guaranteed them certain rights so sovereign rights sovereign rights as individuals now this is where we get a little bit conspiratorial again they believe at some point in history whether it was during the civil war or when the u.s departed from the gold standard uh, they believe that admiralty law was secretly covertly instituted and in doing so removed their sovereign rights or denied them their sovereign rights and rendered them a slave. Christy, can I just <laughs> interrupt? I, I have no idea what admiralty laws are. And if I don't, then certainly there's at least one listener that, that doesn't either. Look, in the Australian context, everyone who's currently waving an admiralty flag also doesn't <laughs> understand admiralty law. Um, generally speaking, their idea of admiralty law, um, I should flag, does not correlate uh, with actual admiralty law. Um, and this is a really interesting conversation I've had with one of our law professors in the Centre of Law and Justice lately as well, um, that essentially their argument is not a legal argument. Their argument is an imagined argument about what they believe admiralty law is. So they believe that essentially, you know, going back to that sort of 17th, 18th century, century um uh, mercantile uh, shipping context that essentially the the captain had this complete and absolute authority over the ship no one else had had any freedom to do anything at all they just had to do what they were told and if they didn't they'd be you know thrown over the side so very much they imagine it as a state of slavery as a state in which they're being unlawfully oppressed unlawfully forced to to work and engage in things that is without their consent and has fundamentally uh, infringed on their sovereign freedoms so drawing on from that so let's 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 accept what they say that okay their their freedoms have been taken um, and they're no longer sovereign what else does this mean so in the u.s context they believe that one of the ways that they can evidence this claim is when your surname, so Campion, let's say, is in all caps. Now they believe this means that myself um, as a sovereign individual has been turned into a, a corporate entity. Um, now part of that feeds into other conspiracies that they hold that the US government has promised its citizens as collateral against future earning potentials. And so some sovereigns, not all of them, but some believe that there is a secret bank account hidden somewhere in the US Treasury with just this 
pile of gold in it uh, under their name as a corporation rather than their, themselves as an individual. So there's a lot of mental gymnastics involved with the sovereign citizen ideology. I would argue outside of the US context, we can make it a lot more simpler because obviously we, we didn't have a, <laughs> the civil war in Australia. We have had a very different experience. So I would say that we can boil sovereign citizen ideology down to a belief that the government is in some way a corrupt financial entity and that through that that lens that it's uh, deemed to be uh, illegitimate because of that financial corruption, that economic corruption, um, and therefore does not have the mandate of the people to rule. It is an evolving space. Obviously, Australia has experienced a considerable surge in sovereign citizens uh, in the past couple of years as a, well, as part of the pandemic context, uh, where we obviously had quite a considerable number of countermeasures that they believed infringed on their sovereign rights and liberties. It can be interpreted diversely um, around the world. One of the other, I feel, one of the supporting systems to the sovereign citizen is the right libertarians. So often I feel these two are confused and I think in the Australian context that confusion continues. In general, right libertarian, uh, right libertarianism is this uh, belief in, in, in the utmost freedom and sovereignty of the individual. Now most people would hear that and think okay well this sounds quite progressive. We all want the, the freedom of the individual, except for within right libertarianism, they're not championing freedom for all. What they're actually championing is freedom from interference, which means that um, you probably think, well, how does this fit under the three, you know, the three categories um, that we use to define the extreme right? So the right libertarians believe in freedom from interference, right? That's, that's their number one overwhelming um, belief. But as part of that, they believe that governance of virtually any type impedes their freedom. So they don't believe in the government enacting measures to enhance uh, female representation, representation in politics or, or um, you know, gender equality in the workplace or these sorts of things. They see these things as infringing on the freedom of all people to thrive, to survive or to fail off their own merit. So what they don't see, what they what they cannot seem to to incorporate here is inequity. They can't seem to understand the role of socioeconomic backgrounds and success. They can't seem to understand the role of ethnicity and cognitive bias. Uh, so they generally have a very hands-off belief system. They're okay with uh, with people not receiving political representation. So that means quite any democratic. They're okay with elements of their community, of their own community, marginalized elements failing because those people don't fit within who they think that the community is. They're not represented. So that's that exclusionary nationalism. And the fact that they're willing to enforce this on others, the fact that they're willing to have people literally starve to death, to, to absolutely slip through the cracks, regardless of the consent of the majority, the consent of the governed, is um, an indication of that authoritarian element. So the right libertarians uh, are a really interesting part of the anti-government milieu. 
Uh, obviously, we've got the militias. Now, in recent years, one of the more interesting outgrowths of, of the militia movement um, is obviously the Boogaloo Boys, who... Uh, uh, the Boogaloo Boys are an interesting movement within a movement within a movement. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're, perhaps they'll be short-lived. Um, we're not quite that sure. But anyway, the, the, the Boogaloo Boys, uh, the, the Boogaloo idea very much began on uh, a message board, uh, a weapons message board, where it was essentially just a community of very harmless folk talking about guns. <laughs> so you can obviously see why this is primarily a US-based movement. As time went on, uh, they, they started to, I wouldn't say disengage, but they started to think and talk a lot about this, this idea of civil war, this looming civil war in the United States and, and informed by a number of conspiratorial beliefs such as related to, to ethnicity. Um, so obviously you, you did have some proponents of the Boogaloo movement that, that were thinking of civil war as race war, but others were just very much thinking our society is broken, our society is in decline, this decline is unstoppable. Um, so why don't we just get started, you know? So these are very almost apocalyptic type uh, movements. So those are the, the, the chief elements of the anti-government movement, but you also have a lot of smaller movements. So there's a common law court movement as well, um, which I, I haven't noticed so much in Australia. I think one of the, the key considerations with the anti-government movement isn't so much the incoherence to the various um, adaptations of the ideology, but rather sovereign citizens particularly seem to be really good at um, stockpiling weapons. So that becomes a bit of a security issue as far as it goes. In Australia, uh, where where, various um, weapons and and, uh, substances that could be used to, to make explosives are really closely monitored, um, that doesn't necessarily entirely stop them from, from stockpiling because many of these people are in rural areas and they're able to get firearm licenses through quite legal means. How we've generally seen them manifest uh, in recent years is death threats quite often uh, against politicians, uh, intimidation campaigns, um, and of course, uh, quite obviously, uh, weapons offences. Um, so they're not... They're not an invisible threat. Um, and I think this is something that is very well known in the United States. Obviously, there's been some really high profile uh, murders conducted by sovereign citizens there. But elsewhere around the world, they are here. Um, you know, they, they are engaged, they are motivated. But in the Australian context, it hasn't been a major attack associated with a sovereign citizen um, or broader anti government movement yet. Christy, the the thing that is abundantly clear from this conversation so far and the just the research I was doing of the various ideologies is the diversity is quite difficult to handle and comprehend and analyse. I mean, just, just that piece you're doing on the sovereign citizens and the whole sort of economic... The conspiratorial economic view of the world just seems a hundred miles from the Christian identity crowd trying to say that Australian white Australians are Hebrews. 
covenanted to mm. God. Then you've got the militia movement. You've got these people evoking Valhalla just in the way that Islamist terrorists say Allah Akbar before they do an attack, which just seems like a totally different route again. And uh, oh, Wait till we get to the Satanists. <laughs> oh, really? Well, yeah. I, okay. I had no idea they were in the picture, but that. But let's get to the Satanists. But and perhaps you could you could <laughs> outline the Satanists. I mean, I've just I can't believe how many new little rabbit holes you keep opening up for me. But <laughs> I, I just I, I just wonder, like, how do how what do we make of the crazy diversity? Is it and is the diversity exploding at the moment? That is, is it something to do with the historical context in which we're in? that is fertilizing both conspiratorial and apocalyptic and religious political fervor like a, or is it is it more of a technological point that these days anyone can start a website and a and a group or write a manifesto and distribute it because even even within the same movement i notice you just get so many different articulations because let me let me put it this way it really struck me on the religious angle i suddenly gained a newfound appreciation for religious authority and i realized actually the way a lot of religions have worked you take christianity is there's always this human propensity to to take the faith in all kinds of wild directions but when you have a church that can impose orthodoxy then that that can have the effect of marginalizing or at least categorizing certain beliefs as heretical vis-a-vis orthodox beliefs but what it seems in these right-wing ecosystems is there is no authoritative voice or figure and so every individual can riff and spin (laughs) or even create their own new version or ideology i I guess i'm just laying out a, a couple of thoughts as i try to grapple with the sheer diversity which is not to contest the sort of umbrella definition but it's almost an anthropological slash psychological slash historical question just to put an enormous onus on your shoulders of like how do how do you make sense of just the smorgasbord of like for what are sort of strange and well outside the mainstream historical narratives and political beliefs and religious beliefs so we actually ran a really, in my opinion, shamelessly, a really opinion, a, a really good study on this, really interesting study on this exact question uh, in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, where what we did over the course of a year was we looked at how three different extreme milieus incorporated and understood COVID-19 in their narratives. So we looked at violent Salafi jihadists, so think your your your, your normal <laughs> your, your normal group. You got your Al Qaeda, uh, Islamic State, Boko Haram, Al Shabaab. We also looked at the extreme left, or at least tried. <laughs> Tell you what, that didn't didn't lead in many interesting directions. Um, and we also looked at the extreme right. And one of the most clear outcomes from that study, to, to my opinion, uh, to my mind, is how having a singular authoritative text really anchors and in some ways constrains ideological interpretations. So what we saw amongst Avant Salafi jihadists in terms of COVID-19 being um, a punishment for transgressors 
or um, the will, the, just the general will of Allah, or um, you know, um, as a mobilizing force for for Muslims to return to the fold, like that kind of thing. It was all very, um, in a way, very coherent, and that coherency was then uh, almost evidenced in how the groups not only spoke about it but also how they managed it, because that's when we started seeing in a really interesting twist, terror organizations um, almost stepping into quasi-governance type roles to actually manage the impact of the pandemic. Now, what's what's the really key point here is that we did not see that amongst the extreme left and we did not see that amongst the extreme right. And I believe it's because of that lack of a singular text. Now, to step back from, from that study and to talk more generally, one of the, the more challenging parts of researching the extreme right is the fact that you're researching ideology, right? And, and ideology doesn't have to reflect truth. It doesn't have to relate, uh, reflect evidence. Um, when it comes to the study of ideologies, all of that is optional. Uh, what it's really about is interpretation. It's about entitivity and it's about understanding the world in a particular confirmatory way. Now, with, with the, uh, the extreme right, that lack of singular text means, again, no one can impose orthodoxy, which allows the, uh, the idiosyncratization or, or you know, the, the divergences of these belief systems to go in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. Now, one of the, the factors for this, um, look, you mentioned historical context and technological contexts. What I will say is that uh, the extreme right were idiosyncratic, you know, that they were not so much reinventing the wheel, but spinning the wheel in another direction for decades before the internet. However, that being said, the extreme right were amongst the earliest adopters of the internet. So I'm talking like bulletin boards of the 1980s internet, the, the internet that pre-existed my birth internet. <laughs> um, uh, the olden days yeah. internet. We can yeah. talk about the olden days internet yeah. already. <laughs> the 1900s, I think they're calling it on TikTok at the right. minute. <laughs> um, now, what we've seen in more recent years is that early adoption of the the internet continuing. So by way of example, one of the longest running uh, message boards on the internet is a white nationalist me message board called Stormfront, which was established by Don Black as early as 1996. That's still going strong uh, today. And obviously there've been countless others. With the, the um, advent and expansion of social media and particularly in encrypted uh, social and messaging applications, it has meant that the dissemination of ideological products is much easier. Every, you know, one of the things I commonly observe uh, in encrypted apps is the resharing of ideological content on the one hand, but also the very easy production of ideological content on the other. So when you have individuals who can simply sit in their car, you know, they've turned on their iPhone and they're just talking to a camera, that's a, that's a whole different production process to what, they've, what they had to do before technology became quite so advanced. Now, that being said, I'm immediately going to contradict myself <laughs> in a way to point out that even before the internet, uh, they were still able to do this communication. 
probably a case in point of this is uh, is David Lane. So David Lane was a very prominent um, right-wing extremist in the United States who was um, convicted of, of various serious offences and was imprisoned. Now, while in prison, he writes the 88 precepts, which becomes almost a... Um, it's, uh, how would you describe it? Uh, well, look, it's a drop-down list of the 88 ways that uh, uh, the so-called Aryan race should live their best life. <laughs> Christy, can uh, I yeah. kind of break in there? The mm. 88, I believe, is a kind of Nazi symbol, and there's a sure lot of symbology is, yeah. in this. And is that why he just happened to... The precepts happen to be 88? <laughs> uh, well, so 88 um, is alphanumeric for Heil Hitler. <laughs> So was that a coincidence? Absolutely not, because are some of the precepts kind of just filling in, <laughs> filling in the numbers? Yes. Um, but what really took off from that was the 14 words, which is we must secure the future of the white race for, um, of the race and future of our children. So I've very poorly abridged it there. But, you know, he writes that from prison. He sends it to his wife, Katja Lane. She puts it in her... Um, in her, her magazine, which she's pretty much making from, from her house. It then gets sent around the world. And now fast forward, you know, 20 or 30 years, and we're still seeing neo-Nazis with 1488 tattooed on their hands, you know, or, or somewhere on their bodies. So the, the ideological adaptations and innovations um, pre-existed their ease for dissemination. So I know that's a, a kind of a splitting, splitting hair distinction to make there. Uh, but I think it's important to point out that even when they are denied access to um, to various materials and various technologies, they still manage to find a way. Now, if we were to look at an example of that more recently, the most obvious example is, of course, uh, the Christchurch terrorist, uh, Brenton Tarrant. I'm not going to talk on his manifesto right now, but what I will point out is that even after he was in prison, he was still able to communicate his ideological narratives to followers around the world. And that was through handwritten letters that were then posted on the internet. So denial of access even today does not prevent the transmission of ideological materials. There's a historical piece to this that naturally comes out of that as we go into the the olden day period of the internet but just before we do that I feel like listeners will be sorely disappointed after you drop that juicy tidbit about Satanists somehow being involved in this right wing extremist milieu so in a couple of words what's the Satanist piece of this puzzle? Yeah look there they're an emerging topic of research, shall I say, for academics around the world. So uh, the, the primary group when we're talking about uh, the Satanists in the, in the ambit of the extreme right are the Order of Nine Angles. So the Order of Nine Angles was established in the United Kingdom and it's gone on in recent times particularly to establish chapters uh, around the world and uh, that primarily is in reference to the United States um, and Australia, so that the three of us you know, are kind of uh, interlinked there. Now, the Order of Nine Angles is a, a really interesting group, and, and I can't claim to be entirely across the theology of it. And the reason for that is because 
they uh, they are alleged to practice these uh, Book of Satan black mass type rituals. Those rituals aren't um, readily accessible. Um, I'm, I'm aware of one copy of, of the book in, in a library in the United Kingdom, but I think that they may have, shall we say, uh, creatively redesigned one <laughs> to to suit themselves. Now, what this means is that they hold they hold these these black mass rituals that are generally focused around sexual behaviour, uh, drug taking, and blood taking. So, one of the things they they do do is obviously consume um, cakes that that have um, human blood in them. So this is a pretty pretty wild thing. Now, the reason why the Order of Nine Angles became uh, quite quite prominent in recent years is because of a particular strategy that they had, rather than their belief systems. So basically they have this strategy of infiltration and you know they have all these tests for their for their initiates right and and part of that that test is to to make the initiate feel deeply uncomfortable so in order to enhance not diminish to enhance that discomfort they instruct them to infiltrate organizations and institutions that are in almost diametric opposition to their beliefs. So if you have someone who's who's an initiate in the order of nine angles and they're deeply averse to, um, you know, uh, orthodox religions, they will have them infiltrate that and, and, and attempt to become a, a priest, for example. Similarly, if, if they're, uh, if they're uh, if they have anarchist tendencies, and you do have an anarchist element of the right wing as well, um, then they'll say, great, you're joining the military, or you're joining the police force, or you're joining this political party, you're going to go inside, you're going to collect data, um, you're going to learn their ways, you're going to, to show that you are this um, wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. Why it matters is that in the last couple of years, it was well known that a member of the Order of Nine Angles infiltrated the US military. Now, what that member then did, that service uh, personnel then did, was he uh, he actually leaked classified information. Um, so the information was particularly related to the movement of his unit um, in the Middle Eastern area of operations. So he was willing to, and this is a really interesting case actually, because here we have a right-wing extremist of a Satanist inclination leaking information to Salafi jihadist terrorists in the Middle East to have his own unit ambushed. Now, what's really interesting is that he was willing to countenance his own death and destruction as part of that ambition. And that's because Satanists quite obviously um, glorify self-sacrifice like every, every other <laughs> extreme, um, extreme ideological system. So, Christy, can I oh, just yeah? ask, is the... Yeah. Is the ambition here of this um, group to infiltrate institutions with the express purpose of trying to undermine them and ultimately destroy the current system of government, which would place them in the sort of anti-government, anti-democratic yeah. type milieu uh, scene? Is that what makes them right-wing? Yeah. So, look, they, are, um, they also are quite rife with... Um, some pretty exclusionary narratives, as you would, uh, as you would expect. So they have the exclusionary nationalist side of it. They're quite obviously not committed to democratic practice. They see democracy as a system to be gamed, 
not as a system that guarantees political equality of all people. Um, again, they don't believe in political equality of all people. Um, and so one of the, the more dangerous targets of these organisations are political parties. Uh, and we have seen in Australia, not by the order of nine angles, but by other proponents of the extreme right, we have seen political parties targeted for infiltration. And the purpose of that infiltration is, um, in a practical way, branch stacking, you know? So, so getting policies through that wouldn't normally have gotten through. And in, in a more uh, indirect way, the subversion and replacement of core values and principles. The, the threat from, from infiltration is quite broad, uh, it's quite diverse. With ONA specifically, um, the Order of Nine Angles specifically, as far as their, their overall intent goes, uh, I would argue that there are both personal and, and ideological elements to why they do what they do. So, you know, the, these, these infiltration attempts are as much about testing the initiate and pushing the initiate as the initiate proving themselves, as well as the, the, the much more practical and serviceable outcomes of the infiltration. So they're a really, they're a really interesting group. They're, they're one that I think we're still learning about. In terms of their, their presence in Australia, um, we know that there's a chapter called the Temple of Blood, um, but as far as their activities, uh, much of this is, is not yet in the open source. Christy, uh, I do want to get to the historical piece because I, I think in a way it fleshes out the diversity question. But I, I do like to be thorough. And <laughs> as you're talking, two more, if you like, definitional current group questions popped into my mind. I'm going to ask them both together. One is, where does QAnon fit into this mosaic, if at all, in your view? And two, at the beginning of the Trump administration back in 2016, it felt like everywhere I looked, I saw the term alt-right. And before long, everyone was being called alt-right. Like it seemed like an extremely... um, shall we say, term that was liberally applied all over the, the place. But as, as I was kind of thinking about this conversation, I realized that term, at least to me, maybe I'm not looking in the right place, it seems to have fallen into disuse just as rapidly as it, as it emerged as the, the great <laughs> sort of security issue on the right. So is alt-right a, a concept you work with as a researcher in this space or is it was it just a kind of media thing do any of these groups call consider themselves alt-right so QAnon and alt-right and then we can move on yeah well I'll start with the easy one first <laughs> and that is the alt-right so the alt-right was a initially it was a self-designation but really it was a branding it was a, a really um this is just my opinion other scholars will debate it the alt-right was a very successful rebranding campaign of white nationalism in, in the United States. So there were key individuals involved with this, but essentially what they what they did is they were people who were on the right side of politics, um, the, the political right, as it were. Uh, there were people who generally held to a very 
ethno-national view of, of the United States that, you know, the, uh, particularly regarding um, ethnic demographic, shall we say. Now, they started calling themselves the alt-right, the alternative right, to differentiate themselves from the, 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 the Republican Party and the more conservative mainstream right wing in the United States. Now, this was initially a very um, demographically younger movement than what you would normally think of when you think about conservative politics in the United States. What it really meant, though, was, uh, it, you know, it kind of implied this level of legitimacy, that they're just, um, you know, th this new emerging but different uh, right wing. But when scholars kind of started to scratch the surface and you know particularly we look at the Charlottesville statement of um, 2017 what we actually saw was just out and out white nationalism it, it, it was it was a easy term to use I think in discourse and, and, I, and in, in a way I think this is a bit of a legalism here where we can say someone's an alt-right um, and and not really get ourselves in any sort of defamatory um, <laughs> waters but underneath it it was literally just a term that was used to replace white nationalists it was a much more acceptable market uh, way of marketing what were white nationalist beliefs um, some scholars have taken that further and they say it's out and out white supremacy uh, so yeah it, it really depends who you talk to on that but the, what i will say from from my opinion is that the alt-right was nothing more than a successful marketing campaign for white nationalism uh, it's obviously fallen into disuse in recent years, which really does show us um, just how much new iterations and interpretations of the extreme right rise and fall um, with the fashion. Now, the, the next one that's obviously very fashionable is QAnon. QAnon is uh, a, a really... I don't want to call it a strange thing, but it sounds judgmental. But to sort of start at the start, QAnon... Um, relates to the order of Q. So essentially, um, this was a game of hide and seek on message boards. So essentially, it was it was believed that there was this um, forum user who went by the name of Q. Now, Q was seen to be a high-level US government military intelligence insider. And it was believed that he was leaving all these little... Um, hints and riddles across the internet across various message boards that were alerting the followers of q that there was this cosmic battle happening in the background um and in some iterations of it trump was seen to be this this crusading force of good fighting the evils within the u.s government um and so what that really prompted was a uh, an online following, um, which obviously became QAnon, where these internet users were frantically digging through the what is relatively the midden of the internet, looking for any clues left behind by this elusive Q person. I would argue that QAnon is not yet an ideology. Will it ever become one? I wonder. So when we talk about ideology, we're talking about three, again, this is a rule of threes that <laughs> permeate the extreme right, three primary contours that give an ideology almost the right to be called an ideology. Uh, so the first contour is an explanation of the current order, why the world is the way that it is. 
Well, QAnon has that. It definitely has an account of the existing order. The second element is an alternative, an alternative order, an improved society, a vision of good society. QAnon doesn't have that. The third iteration, the, the third contour of an ideology is a theory for social change. Once again, in the normal extreme right, that theory for social change is generally civil war, race war, purge, extermination, deportation, destruction. QAnon doesn't have a theory for, for political or social change. So at this point, it remains a conspiracy. And a conspiracy doesn't necessarily have to have the same components of an ideology. What I have seen, though, is people who are in the extreme right who already believe that the government is corrupt and evil and, and cannot be trusted and doesn't have legitimacy or validity, adopting some of the, the those um, some of those elements of the Q conspiracy, which is that there's this you know secret battle going on behind closed doors. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is, while the extreme right can can adhere to QAnon conspiracies, QAnon is not specifically within those definitions of the extreme right itself. That's very clear. Thank you. So that allows me now to move to the historical question I was going to ask. And it's really based on a revelation for me from your book, which in this case is documenting, and again, I stress the book is about the whole history of terrorism, left-wing, right-wing, ideological, and religious Islamist, but not only Islamist, there's the crew responsible for the Hilton bombing was a, um, a kind of strange religious sect from India, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But the revelation was, you know, I think a lot of people, and, and maybe even I had was in this camp, With we know that there's this rise of fascism in the 20s. Maybe some people don't realise it actually begins in Italy, not Germany. Uh, it's a, and it comes from an Italian word but as a kind of ideology it emerges in the 20s and it really takes off and it's it's more than just germany and italy it's it's in spain it goes into greece you find it in eastern europe and there there are there are even fascists in the uk and australia <laughs> as it turns out but of course we all know fascism is is sort of categorically defeated in its state form and it, it ceases to be a state ideology really anywhere with the exception perhaps of Spain. I don't know enough about Franco's regime, but people describe it as fascist. But the interesting thing is that the right-wing extremism never disappears. It just continues on <laughs> from 1945 to pick the end of World War II all the way up to today. And all through this period, there are right-wing extremist groups, some of them fascist, some of them... There are different iterations as we've been talking in Australia and some of them even go down the path of violence. There was one group that I think was a kind of national socialist group, but you will correct me if I'm wrong, that waged a metaphorical jihad against Chinese restaurants and had this kind of anti-immigration focus it seemed and I think it was operating primarily in Perth and it kind of goes into hibernation or um, disbandment in the 90s because the key figures get arrested. Some of these groups uh, end up committing mur murders, although interestingly against their own members, not members of the public. But I guess it does speak to the, the propensity for violence there. And I know that in Europe and the in America, I'm sure Canada, New Zealand, it's probably 
all the same, but also Germany, Scandinavia. I, I bet if we look at every single one of these countries, you'll see a continuous history of right-wing extremism with different generations fertilizing different um, groups and ideologies. And of course, underlying all this, although there's much more to it than fascism and Nazism, that astonishingly remains <laughs> current decades and decades after the end of the the Third Reich. The thing I want to ask, because we don't have time to go through the entire global history of right-wing extremism, but I just, I'm just i just taking us here to, to fill out a picture because we've been talking mainly contemporary. And I thought of this when you started to go back to the dissemination of right-wing extremist ideology back in the in the 80s and that guy writing his 88 whatever's in prison so so i'm just laying out that there, there's this long continuous history that's really the the key point what i really want want to invite you to talk about is what what is unique about today's right-wing extremists what what are the big biggest developments and there's one that occurs to me having read Brenton Tarrant's um, manifesto, which is called The Great Replacement. And I started to read Anders Breivik, the, Norwe- the convicted Norwegian terrorist. Uh, what was his? His 2088, was it? And uh, 83, 2083. Yeah, I only got a few pages. And, and once once you realize it's about 1,500 pages, you realize. Mm. And well, the good news is it's 900 of those pages are plagiarized. <laughs> are they really? Yeah. Well, the key, the reason I mentioned both of those is that they have a real, they conceive of their actions in the context of this global war between Islam and let's call it white European civilization and culture. Now I'm guessing if we went back to the 50s and the 60s, maybe even the 70s and 80s, I'm guessing, but correct me if I'm wrong, that's not one of the key ideas. And I wonder as well if that is germane to what seems like it's emerging now, which is a is, is the terrorist part. These groups have always shown a propensity to violence, but often it's arson, it's individual murder, it's harassment, it's a desecration of synagogues and uh, Jewish graves, death threats, that kind of thing. But we're now talking about acts of terrorism that are mass casualty, you know, the wholesale slaughter of, of um, people. And if you look at their ideology, you know, it it really has this Islamic focus. And Brenton Tarrant, of course, horrifically just went in and gunned down a bunch of um, Muslims worshipping, and his youngest victim was, was three. I mean, these, these are the most kind of brutal acts of violence, not to mention that he live-streamed it, which is just um, a whole other level of um, psychotic. So that that's one change that occurs to me. You can You can talk about that. I guess I'm really asking about the continuities and the discontinuities over what is a surprisingly long history of yeah. right-wing extremism globally. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the uh, I think one of the, the the challenges that permeate this space is, is, as you said, that we might have seen the military defeat of fascist governments, but fascist ideologies were never so comprehensively discredited. Um, but even if we step away from fascism in Australia and, and elsewhere in the world, there were these grassroots ethno-nationalist movements 
that were actually that actually preceded uh, the rise of fascism. So in Australia, that's evidenced with groups like the New Guard and um, and the Old Guard <laughs> and the Australian First Movement. But what's interesting is that grassroots organisations, whoever natively they seem to be embedded, do tend to reach out to fellow travellers around the world. And that's why that transnational element um, is such an incredible factor because, you know, we had, you know, even prior to the 1920s, grassroots ethno-nationalist movements reaching out to um to to literally to Benino uh, Mussolini literally to Adolf Hitler like these are very clear and obvious connections with formal fascist movements so I think one of the elements that has sustained uh ideologies particularly associated with fascism in western democratic contexts where it's seemingly so um disharmonic is those domestic grassroots organizations that that have enough overlap to sustain the subcultures but to, to go to, to go to the question um, really about um, some of the the distinctions in the contemporary extreme right I kind of take great delight in saying that they're nowhere near as original as what they want people to believe that they are <laughs> uh, so by way of example one of the the key evolutions shall we say of the Australian extreme right specifically is how their target pool develops and how it 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 actually expands so in our first wave of uh, extreme right-wing violence in Australia we saw it primarily directed at the political left so this is a really important thing because this is happening during the rise of Bolshevism right so the rise of Bolshevism is the current context, and in that context, they are deemed to be the most overwhelming, perilous threat to the survival of um, of, of the in-group, right? As time goes on, that target list, uh, and I, I should say as well, as a disclaimer, that um, Jews were also targeted in, in that first wave, and they've been targeted ever since. <laughs> um, but in the, in the second wave, and that's the Australian nationalist movement that you alluded to, they conducted their firebombing campaign against Asian businesses in Perth. And that was within the current context of uh, increased Asian immigration following um, uh, legis- legislative change under Prime Minister Holt um, and obviously the Vietnam War, which was seeing more Vietnamese uh, immigrants and refugees come to Australia. So. What we see in the Australian context is that target pool of Jews in the political left, who, by the way, I should point out that the extreme right think are synonymous, <laughs> um, that target pool expands and suddenly you have Asians being targeted as well, uh, you know, the, the exotic other. So let's fast forward to current day when we see this sudden fixation and focus on Muslim peoples in Western democratic contexts. So. This ties in with existing demographic conspiracy, conspiracy theories. No, the, these emerged uh, in, in white settler societies independently, but became mutually reinforcing. So in the United States, one of the, the big theories of Aryan nation type groups, including Aryan nation specifically, um, is this, this theory called white genocide, which is this belief that the so-called white race is being bred out of existence. Uh, and they believe that this is because people of other ethnicities have, um, in, in their belief, higher reproductive rates. So 
uh, I was looking into Aryan nations in Australia in 1972, and they were arguing that uh, by 2000, uh, by the year 2000, only 3% of the world's population would be white because they believe that there's this, you know, this concerted attempt by these malevolent forces around the world to see the white race bred out of existence because they're strong, right? They're, they're, they're this genius um, Heronsvolk type master race. So why wouldn't everyone want to breed them out of existence? That, that's their logic there. So white genocide theories um, such as that endured over the decades and one thing i will note that as of 2000 that three percent prediction is wildly incorrect (laughs) um so obviously math isn't that's a real surprise (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so what we've seen though in in the current context what's been the most major sort of security issue in the past 20 years quite obviously the war on terror now this means that that white genocide conspiracy theory has pivoted And what we've seen instead is the emergence of narratives um, supporting um, a a new, uh, shall we say a remodeled conspiracy theory called the Arabia Project. Now, under the Arabia Project, elements of the extreme right, such as Anders uh, Bering Brevik, who committed the Oslo attack in 2011, what he argues is that the the oil-rich Muslim nations of the Middle East um, are using their incredible wealth to purchase position, uh, politicians, to, to purchase academics, um, <laughs> which if they've seen the state of funding of u- <laughs> universities is a whole other discussion, but um, to purchase the media, you know, to, pu- to purchase positions of power. Now, from that, uh, they believe they're going to essentially supplant rulership. And then you're going to have this society in which um, in which white majority countries are essentially I'm probably not going to pronounce this right but dimmies essentially they're they're um, going to be subject to these Muslim overlords just if I could jump in there because this this is something I do know about but dimmy is is an Arabic term and that's a it's a kind of um, Islamic concept to do with the status and relationship of non-Muslims to Muslims living in a Muslim majority society run under the, the Sharia. So they're, they're referring to um, the conspiracy part is, is the, the project to make everyone dimmy, but they are taking a, a real sort of theological <laughs> concept, if you like, from, from Islam. Yeah, I mean, well, that's one of the more kind of random parts of the extreme right is some of the extreme right actually deeply admire jihadist terrorist groups. Um, so, by well, way, well, can I just jump in one <laughs> yeah. more time because yeah. I can't help myself just on that point because I, 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 I can totally get that because, and I should probably just just for the sake of reference, I, I had a whole career working on Islamist terrorism my, myself, so I, I'm I'm new to the world of right wing extremism, but not new to the world of terrorism, and and I've I've done basically what you, Christy, have done just with jihadists and and read loads and loads and got very close and personal with their theology slash political ideology and the the similarity similarities are striking the the little bit that i managed to wade through bravik's turgid thing that passes for a manifesto was just a complete mirroring opposite mirroring of the jihadist literature i had read so the where the jihadists come in and and both of them have this big macro 
global historical view of history and the, and the world. And so the jihadists come in and say, look, there's this global conspiracy by the Zionist crusaders to destroy Islam, subjugate it, stop it from its natural right uh, as the um, those who have submitted to the will of Allah to bring peace and prosperity to the world, which is under a sort of Islamic system. And they have cowered the Muslim Ummah, the Muslim people. And so what we need to do is embark on a project of revolutionary violence by reviving this Islamic historical theological doctrine of jihad to act actualize the great strength that lies within the Muslim community demographically. And if they do that, then we can restore Islam to its rightful place of supremacy. Then you get the Anders Breiviks of the world that say, oh, we're in a cosmic struggle with um, jihadists who have been trying to destroy the Christian Western civilization <laughs> since Muhammad hit the scene and you know uh, became the leader of the Muslim community in the early 7th century and so now and, and Tarrant had the same thing they see themselves as as soldiers fighting against the jihadists and against this threat of white genocide so the the great irony here is that they they both really do see themselves as locked in the same struggle it's just that they're they're view of the world projects onto the other exactly what the other projects onto them so in the in the case of the right-wing extremists extremists they're defending the west against this islamic invasion in the thought of the jihadists they're defending the muslim world from this conspiracy of the anders breiviks of the world to annihilate islam and it's just extraordinary to see there's this formal similarity in the worldview even though the content is kind of differently and clearly in the narrative of both, they are the virtuous ones doing, you know, fighting for good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one, of the, one of the sort of comments we observed from the extreme right was, oh, I can't remember what year it was, but essentially the, um, the Afghan, uh, well, uh, was at that point the Afghan Taliban had um, captured a number of prisoners right and they they were executing the prisoners and what what the extreme right said was you know how uh, how great is it that they have the boldness to do this you know so they actually even though they they fundamentally you know disagreed with their existence even what they admired was their willingness to commit violence in pursuit of it you know, they, they saw this as a as a mark of um, of of strength, really. Um, but that also feeds into to to other elements and to other narratives as well. So, you know, with uh, with Brenton Tarrant, for example, in his manifesto, The Great Replacement, he talks about the the killing of uh, Ebba. Um, uh, Ebba. Uh, yeah. Um, I can't pronounce the last name. Ackerland? Yeah, I think it is yeah. it a Swedish name. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah I know who you um, mean. By jihadists as you know, a raison d'être for his violence, and I think that uh, that there are a couple of different things at play here. But broadly speaking, regardless of what terrorists you're talking about, um, or what organisation, what movement, they will always have, always have a justification for why violence is necessary why violence is the only way and so when it comes to the contemporary extreme right one of the things that they draw on are jihadist terrorist attacks in the west 
Uh, they also draw on other elements um, such as cultural practice and religious practice and of course um, as we we're talking about earlier this concept of being bred out of existence and that's a very prominent part of Brenton Tarrant's uh, manifesto as well that it's all about the birth rates uh, and realistically though even if I feel like if even if they didn't have the context of the war on terror they would still have an enemy and they would still be using that enemy to justify their violence you know we, we've seen particularly in the Australian context you know we have now uh, 50 years I think of, of manifestos you know warning of you know the end of white civilization uh, it obviously hasn't happened. <laughs> it is obviously not not related um, to 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 actual data. So, and we know from Breton Tarrant's manifesto that his idea of research was simply reading Wikipedia. Uh, so, what in fact I'm, he, he <laughs> says just on that point, because because <laughs> people won't have read the manifesto, but the the most extraordinary thing to me, because I've never in all my years of looking at terrorism, albeit focused on Islamists, I've, I've dabbled in a few other types of terrorism here and there over the years I've never seen a document that so transparently articulates who the person the, te- the actor is and why they are committing the act of violence so he he penned this thing in a kind of question answer format laying out all of the questions he anticipated quite correctly I think often what kind of questions law enforcement the general public journalists scholars might ask you know are you a this are you a that did you find this and <laughs> he asks at one he, he asks this kind of rhetorical question where did you get your information and he literally says the internet exclusively and he's already admitted early on that he was a high school dropout and he just like there's no sense of shame shame at all but he, he basically says i'm a complete product of the internet which clearly would ring alarm bells for anyone violent or otherwise yeah i absolutely he he did spend a lot of time in in some of the very uh difficult and dangerous online ecosystems in which extreme right-wing ideology uh was being shared and celebrated one of the the interesting things about uh the christchurch uh terrorists but but also the extreme right generally is just how engaged they are with the world around them, but just how ideologically interpreted that world is. You know, so with with the with the case of Brenton Tarrant, um, in, in the early days after the attack, I think there was an attempt uh, by commentators to really frame frame his violence as an internet problem number one and an international problem number two. So this is uh, obviously related to the fact that prior his attack, uh, he had inherited quite a significant amount of money from uh, the passing of his father. Now, he used that money uh, to travel the world. And, and he went to Islamic countries. He, he went to um, authoritarian hotspots like North Korea. He traveled widely um, and used up from what we're able to tell the, the vast majority of that money in the space of a couple of years and so there was this idea that somehow he'd been radicalized in his travels uh, but what his manifesto indicates um, to my mind at least is that you have an individual who is 
deeply concerned with the current context and what we've seen with him and what we've seen with other right-wing extremists in Australia in the past, such as with Rosemary Sasson, who established the National Front, is travel and engagement with others becomes part of the confirmatory process for adopting an ideology. So when they travel so uh, to, to countries like South Africa, to North Korea, uh, to the Ukraine, where Tarrant is... Uh, it was suspected that he was there, um, and this was sort of carefully not denied by Ukrainian authorities and then somewhat confirmed by New Zealand authorities in the in the commission following the attack. What these these experiences indicate is that there was a learning process happening and that these experiences were con- contributing to pre-existing ideas and, and fleshing out these ideas. So this kind of tells us, okay, well, this is why he was engaging with white supremacist groups in Australia. This is why he was engaging with identitarian groups in Europe. This is why he was fighting in the Ukraine. Ideology isn't just, oh, I woke up one day and picked up a book and and now suddenly I'm an (laughs) eco-fascist. It's a really almost unconscious learning process. And when you look at the the latter years of Tarrant's life, you can almost pinpoint, okay, he went there and he was exposed to this and then exposed to this and this. So um, what I'm sort of getting at with this is that his process wasn't quick and it wasn't one-dimensional. There were a lot of aspects to it and and a lot of different... uh, He was exposed to a lot of different influences, but some he also came up with on his own as well. So one of the... I think one of the most interesting parts of the manifesto is his articulation of his eco-fascist ideology and and he talks about that as you said in his q a in his quasi self-interview portion of his of his manifesto where he talks about how he's an eco-fascist and how he didn't always um, believe in eco-fascism but now he does and he lists some of his key influences including the uk fascist oswald mosley but what he then articulates in the rest of the manifesto is actually quite a um, quite a coherent uh, coherent narrative as to how he sees his ecofascism manifesting in real life. So when he's talking about killing the CEOs of major corporations, he's doing that and he's saying that because of the ideology of ecofascism, which suggests that corporations are in part responsible for the destruction of nature and for the separation of people from their native environment. You know, so when he's talking about um, killing the political left, it's for the same reason. They're seen to be responsible for the, uh, you know, for cultural Marxism and wokeness and political correctness and all of that, which has led to um, a state of, of, um, of, uh, of, of slavery, really, because it's just a all seem to be part of the society which has robbed them of their freedoms. So when it comes to that attack um, and that manifesto specifically, although there was a great deal of criticism of, of the manifesto in the early days, it is actually a very dangerous document because it articulates very clearly a new idiosyncratic adaptation of fascist theory. That is, of course, eco-fascism. So he, it's really just more case in point of how the extreme right keeps evolving um, and, and changing over time. Absolutely. It, it, that eco-fascism was 
for me just a real eye opener because of course people would associate well, I say of course but I, I I think it's safe to assume the majority of people would associate environmentalism and concern for climate change with the left yeah you wouldn't absolutely. think to mix it with fascism and here's a guy describing himself as an echo fascist and he has all of the authoritarian uh, national exclusivity anti-democratic you know he really tears democracy a new one for all those reasons you articulated the weak dominate the strong and it's corrupt and it's flawed and it, it's gained but then he matches it <laughs> with with uh, a concern for the destruction of the environment which is just it's like wow that's a that is a very unusual or not unusual it's, it's a surprising yeah, ideological I, move. It, it really is. I, I mean, when, you know, I think since the, the 70s, we've very much had connotations with environmentalism and the political left wing. At the same time, in the, in the uh, Australian, US and Irish contexts, we've had uh, female right wing extremist organisations um, this whole time talking about uh, about nature and the role of um, the female right wing uh, in conserving the environment. And, and what we then see with Tarrant, like I'm not suggesting that he read the, the magazines produced by, by that female chapter, but what we see with Tarrant is this belief that native environments facilitate the, the flourishing of so-called native peoples. Now, why do I say so-called? In Australia, quite obviously, <laughs> people of European descent are not native. But what we see, though, is this this anchorage of uh, of fascism within the context of environmentalism. That both uh, the fascist needs to conserve the environment for its own sake, for them to thrive in it, but also that the environment needs to be conserved for the people's sake. And it's really uh, it really highlights this um, symbiosis within the extreme right with uh, with the the Aryan and uh, the Aryan uh, landscape, and that landscape is seen to be this this um, native environment, and only they can probably take care of it. And so, the presence of other people, particularly immigrants, they're seen to be invasive species. This isn't actually that new either. I mean, the Nazis did the exact same thing about about the Jews in in Nazi Germany, where they said that you know Jews were a desert people, therefore they should not be in the rich wooded hinterlands of Germany. Ergo, that they were a they were a parasitic um, and corrosive influence in the ecosystem. So, it is really interesting to see old ideas being given such um, new and dangerous interpretations and what we know quite obviously from how these uh, right-wing attackers express themselves in manifestos is that you know Tarrant was a at least an influence on the El Paso attacker um, in the United States um, and that both of them the El Paso attacker and uh, and the Christchurch attacker were subsequently an influence on the uh, Bayram attacker in Norway so Ideas really do matter when it comes to, to national security, particularly uh, because, you know, they're able to sort of give people uh, justification and validation for the violence that they're probably going to pursue anyway. Yeah, that's a similar story with the Chartists as well. Every time there was a successful attack, and particularly if it innovated in some ways, that it would inspire an, an individual, even unconnected or another group. There was a kind of 
competitive market in a way. Um, I remember remember when I was working in the intelligence business, you know, seeing some groups discuss with admiration the successful attacks and innovations of other groups and exploring, can we <laughs> learn from this and, and, and adopt it? And of course, the one of the really sobering things about Tarrant is that he, he reached out to Anders Breivik or his people uh, in prison and sought and received, as he tells it, his blessing for the attack. And so in one way, the right-wing extremists who are prone to violence don't need to look to jihadists anymore for inspiration unfortunately this is this seems to me one of the the really bad developments here is now they have their own heroes who have succeeded in mass murder and you only need one or two people in different countries to be inspired every couple of years and you could be looking at a, a sort of serious ongoing and evolving threat and we do need to bring this home somehow, which is very difficult because we haven't plumbed the depths of the many, many wells from which we have drawn uh, water. So I think we can segue into some kind of conclusion by just noting, actually, uh, I saw, I don't know if you caught Mike Burgess, the Director General of ASIO was on 7.30 last night or the night before. An interesting thing for me, having worked on terrorism in a couple of intelligence agencies, albeit not ASIO, uh, was that he nominated espionage and I think foreign interference as the number one security threat that ASIO is working on, which I don't think was the case when I was in the business, uh, 2007 to 2014. And at the time I was working at uh, what is now the Australian Signals Directorate uh, back in 2007 to 2010, 70% of the entire agency's resources were dedicated to Islamist terrorism. Now, I should just state that that agency looks overseas. It doesn't do domestic terrorism. And of course, back then, it was a, that was the number one terrorist threat globally. And, I, and when I was a senior terrorism analyst at the Office of National Assessments, I used to go every now and then to what was then known as the Counterterrorism Control Center, which was an interagency thing chaired by ASIO, where they kind of run through the the domestic cases and I distinctly remember I don't know the year but I was I was at ONA 2010 to 2014 there was the odd case of left-wing and right-wing violent extremism in Australia that they were investigating but I note in more recent times and you document this in your book that um, Mike Burgess has noted that right-wing extremism in particular has really become a much more significant part of the caseload in Australia and the Islamist terrorism caseload has declined somewhat or perhaps if it hasn't declined it's just that the right-wing extremism has has come up I don't know if there is a percentage you may have mentioned a percentage in your book but he certainly even in this Lee Sales interview gave the impression that uh, right-wing extremism and, his, and or what, what he calls I think ideological extremism by which he really means right-wing extremism and religious extremism by which he means pretty much exclusively Islamist terrorism. Uh, there's, there's some political delicacies for understandable reasons here. Seem to be on par now as a threat. And so where I want to finish is your assessment of this threat. If I think I think uh, Mike Burgess is probably in a position <laughs> to know, so I think we could 
we can rely on his count that this this is a growing threat but I take it it's a growing threat from a, what was a pretty marginal phenomenon and I know it's really hard to put figures on this but how bad is it how big could the threat threat get and I, I'm mindful here that if we because part of me just thinks no these the the ideologies are so crazy they're never going to find traction in the mainstream and then, then I always have to remind myself well it took over whole countries back in the uh, 30s and 40s and led to a cataclysmic global war okay maybe they were different times but we we shouldn't close our minds to the possibility of growth here look in the 1970s uh a very wise asia analyst said that terror is a growth industry (laughs) (laughs) and i would say that they are still 100 percent correct so look there has been a lot of discussion in the past couple of uh I wouldn't even just say the last couple of weeks, but the last couple of years about the threat of the extreme right. I would contextualise my response by by almost reflecting back on what we were just saying about how these attackers can be influenced by each other and how they'll crop up here and crop up there and, and wreak this incredible amount of damage. Now, one of the things we can identify, uh, and this is actually the language that they use, is you, you said heroes of the extreme right. They call themselves saints. If you get a high death toll, you're a saint, right? And so we have Saint Tarrant, we have Saint Brevik. You get a low death toll, you become a disciple, such as uh, Ballot, such as Patrick Crucis from the uh, from the El Paso attack. So what I'm getting at with this is they are establishing their own pantheon, their own genealogy of heroes. Now, what this means is that we're dealing with a threat which is persistent, number one. But number two, it's inconsistent. Um, It's unpredictable at the same time as being immutable. Now, this is what makes the extreme right such a really difficult thing because when we looked at the global jihadist movement and and our global, (laughs) in inverted commas, attempts at at combating it, we were talking about a, a very large system of networks, right? that were engaging in violence with a, a very uh, consistent tempo and so it remained consistently at the height of the threat level. That's not what we see with the extreme right. They do have networks, their networks are transnational, but they're nowhere near, I would argue, quite so efficient, number one, <laughs> nor quite so coherent as what we saw with the global jihadist networks as facilitated by the likes of Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. So I think, again, that goes back to the idiosyncrasies of the extreme right. Um, It means that they're more prone to infighting, they're more prone to self-cannibalization, you know, they're more prone to fragmenting and going in their own random and separate ways because they don't have that single uniting text, that single source of authority. So what this means is when we're talking about the extreme right, we're talking about a threat that is established at the same time as being emerging. Um, So this is occupying some really interesting space here because on the one hand, we know that they're here. We know that they're willing to engage in violence. But on the other hand, they're changing and evolving. They're forming their, their, their... fragmenting and then reforming so rapidly that it's it's quite difficult uh, to, I think, for various governments and policymakers to really know 
okay, how do we allocate to this threat? What was the sort of resourcing? So, you know, if it was X amount of years since the last mass casualty attack, how much of that is because of our action and how much of it is because of the threat nature itself? I think one of the tricky things about this is that counterterrorism done well means that there are no attacks. So how can you then draw an assumption based on, for myself as an open source researcher, um, how can you then go, well, it's working or it's not working when what you're dealing with is the absence rather than the plethora of violence? So, uh, you know, when it comes to, to the statements by the, uh, by the Director General, look, he has shown uh, quite a lot of leadership in the last couple of days with respect to the national security discourse in Australia. But one of the things I will say uh, in in light of his comments about foreign interference being the now, you know, the, the major threat that, that the Australian um, security apparatus is now concerned with, is that you actually cannot draw a clear and distinct line between the threat of the extreme right in Australia and foreign interference and subversion. The reason for that is that we know and there is evidence of foreign governments manipulating Australian extreme right-wing groups, uh, funding right-wing groups around the world, especially in the United States. So what we can draw from this is that you actually cannot entirely disentangle foreign governments with malevolent intentions from domestic organisations. So that's my key takeaway there, is that there is an overlap, so it's not either or, Sometimes it's both and at the same time. <laughs> uh, but to close off, uh, my, my expectation with respect to the, the current and emerging extreme right is that we have enough individuals, we have enough organisations, and we have enough resourcing out there to quantify a threat. We know that the various state police organisations and, and services and intelligence outfits are working very hard on this. And what I, would, what I would finish with is that they're doing a very good job. We've seen prosecutions in recent years, we're seeing more arrests, we're seeing law enforcement particularly taking this threat very seriously. Uh, so in my opinion, they're doing uh, the best they can in a very difficult time dealing with a very inconsistent and yet persistent threat. Grishy, that's quite an encouraging uh note to finish on and I and I from the point of view of someone that worked on Islamist terrorism and was up close and personal with the counter-terrorism effort I want to echo your sentiment I, I think actually Australia's the men and women working in our um, various counter-terrorism police units state and federal and ASIO officers have really done just about as good a job as you can expect with that type of a threat and Australians can um, be encouraged by that and even proud so Christy I really appreciate you sharing your expertise here it's been utterly revelatory for me and I worked on a part <laughs> of terrorism I had no idea I was what turns out I was working on the consistent part and it is it is ideologically extremely consistent all drawn from the same authoritative texts and in, interpreters and this this was a, a really, in some ways, far more challenging thing, even for, for me, with some experience in terrorism. To, 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 to try. I know we're talking about extremism, but, this is, but they uh, are overlapping here. And so I've, I've really appreciated your insights. And 
I'll blame you in about 10 years if I'm still uh, thinking about this topic because uh, you may have ignited an interest that I won't be able to quash. So thank you for that and <laughs> for the conversation. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you.